Romans 8 verse 1 is our text for today. This is the 38th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans was written by a missionary. One of the reasons that the Apostle Paul wrote it was to raise funds for his missionary endeavor to Spain. The heart of God is missions, and perhaps this God is calling you to be a missionary. Have you considered that? Have you prayed about that? If if he has called you, are you willing to go? Even if he's not calling you yourself to go, there's one thing that we do know for certain, and that is that he is calling you to assist others to go. One of the ways that we can do that is to encourage missionaries, and I am so proud of you that you have reached out to the Kunis in Indonesia and that you have sent them emails. That has been a great blessing. That is one of the ways that you can help to encourage and to send missionaries. Today's message is 38 handwritten pages. The title of the message is today is Now Know. Turn please to Romans chapter 8. As you're turning, please remember that God loves you. And listen as I read our text for today. Hear the word of the Lord, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our Father in heaven, today it will be fairly simple to explain that we, because of the gospel, are not condemned. It is very straightforward in your word. But Lord, for us to feel this, for us to appreciate this, for us to be thankful for this, this will take the work of your Holy Spirit. And so Lord, it is our prayer today that not only would we understand what it means not to be condemned But Lord, today that we would appreciate that and that we would be thankful and rejoice in light of that beautiful gospel truth. It is in Jesus' name that we make this request. Amen. Today we have a two-point outline and our two points are these. Point number one, now. Point number two, no. In 2008, we sent our then 16-year-old son, Parker, to Georgia to live with Anna's parents for his senior year of high school. Uh, We did this for two reasons. Number one, so that he could obtain Georgia State residency and go to the University of Georgia with in-state tuition. The second reason why we did this is so that he could play one year of high school football. Uh, As a homeschooler in New York City, that opportunity was not afforded him. He wanted to play one year of high school football. So in the summer of 2008, Parker worked very hard to get in shape. Uh, He had his heart set on playing high school football for the Armerchi Indians in Armerchi, Georgia. A few weeks after he arrived, He was informed that he was ineligible to play football for his senior year. Apparently, there is a rule in the state of Georgia which says that you cannot transfer from one high school to another and play immediately. You have to sit out. Well, they made this rule, I think, so that big and powerful schools would not recruit the best athletes. But whatever their rationale was, he was ineligible to play. And he was devastated, and so were we. Uh, We were informed uh, that he could appeal this disqualification, 
by appearing before the Georgia State High School Rules Committee in Thomaston, Georgia, which was 151 miles away from Armerchi. And so I flew to Atlanta. I rented a car. I picked him up and drove him to Thomaston on Tuesday, August 19th, 2008. We were accompanied that day by Parker's 78-year-old grandfather, Bill, Anna's father. Uh, he went along for moral support, as did Parker's football coach, John Mullinax. All four of us walked into the meeting that day with very little hope that we would get an exemption, which brings us to Romans chapter 8. Many consider Romans chapter 8 to be the most uh, important or best chapter in all the Bible. They consider Romans as the best book in the Bible and Romans 8 to be the most important chapter in the most important book. Now, those opinions are subjective, but I don't know that I can argue with them. It is like a greatest hits album. What do we have in Romans 8? Well, among other things, we have the fact that the Spirit intercedes for us and that all things work together for good and that those whom he justified, he also glorified and that if God be for us, who can be against us and that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is just to name a few. But our text today perhaps is the greatest highlight in the greatest chapter. It is song one on side A of Paul's greatest hits, and it is what? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, before we look at our text today and we accentuate our two main points, let me put the text into its context. Big context. Paul's primary reason for writing the book of Romans was chiefly to clarify some misunderstandings between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians at the church in Rome. Before he gets to his main topic in chapter 9, he first establishes his credibility by spelling out his gospel, and he does so in great detail. In fact, that is the first eight chapters of the book. The first section of the book of Romans is chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, in which he presents the gospel. Chapter 1, Gentiles are guilty sinners before God. Chapter 2, Jews are guilty sinners before God. Chapter 3, everybody is a guilty sinner before God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that at the end of chapter 3, he says that there is salvation, there is justification by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. And in chapter 4, that is illustrated in the life of Abraham, faith alone in Christ alone. The second section of Paul's gospel introduction is chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. In it, Paul explains the Christian life. In other words, what does your life look like between the time that you get saved and the time that you go to heaven? Some say that the theme of this section is hope. Others say it is assurance. Others say it is sanctification. None of those answers are wrong. In chapter 5, Paul says that we have peace with God. Why? Because Christ died for the ungodly. 
And then in chapter 5, he compares Adam to Christ. Both of them were very influential. Adam brought death. Christ brings life. Interestingly, if you will look in your Bible at the last verse of chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, at the end of each one of those chapters, the Apostle Paul mentions Christ Jesus our Lord. In chapter 6, Paul compares the Christian life to baptism and slavery. In chapter 7, Paul uses the metaphor of marriage to describe the relationship that we have to Christ. And then at the end of chapter 7, you'll remember for the past couple of weeks, we looked at Paul's soliloquy concerning the state of human beings and our inability to keep the law. Now we are in chapter 8, verse 1, and he draws a conclusion. And what is this conclusion? The conclusion is that there is therefore, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, The word therefore is therefore a reason. Uh, Therefore a reason. And what is it therefore? Well, there's no universal agreement. Let me give you four options as to why the therefore is there. Some say it is a conclusion of everything that has been written in chapters 1 through 7. That fits very nicely since chapter 8 verse 1 is a summation or a bottom line of all the gospel truths contained in the previous seven chapters. That that does work. That does fit. Some say it is a continuation or an explanation of what Paul says at the end of chapter 7. These two verses butt up to one another, 7.25 and 8.1. And in 7.25, he says, thanks be to God through our Lord, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now here in 8.1, he says that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what we have are two verses right next to one another. Certainly what this argument has in its favor is proximity, because that's usually how we interpret Scripture. If we see a therefore, we just look back at our closest neighbor for the rationale, for the logic, for the flow of the passage. So 725 and 81 fit pretty closely together, and thematically they go very well together. The third option is a little bit more complicated, but, but, it, but it is equally valid. And that is, going back to chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, some people think that 7-5 is a microcosm for the rest of chapter 7, and that chapter 7, verse 6, is a truncated mini-me of chapter 8. And this has a lot of validity as well. Uh, let me refresh you on that. Back in chapter 7, verse 5, this is a summation of the rest of chapter 7. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And now in chapter 7, verse 6, here's a summation basically of what we find in all of chapter 8. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, it is a little bit more convoluted, but it does work, and and and, and it is a valid assessment. Personally, however, 
I like the fourth option the best. And that is that what Paul is doing in chapter 8, verse 1, is picking up where he left off in chapter 5. I didn't invent this. I got this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. There are three reasons why I think Lloyd-Jones is correct. First of all, because of the similarity between chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1 is, is, is positive. It is the positive result of what it means to be saved, and that is peace with God. And chapter 8 is the absence of the negative condemnation. But the structure and the bottom line are the same. Listen to these two verses back to back. 5-1. Therefore, since we have been justified with, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They are very similar. The second reason why I think it is a continuation of what has been taught in chapter 5 is because of the word condemnation. In all of Paul's writings, he is only going to use this particular word, condemnation, three times. Twice in chapter 5, and once here in verse 8. Listen to how fitting it is and how similar the language is and the tone is with respect to the word condemnation in 5 over to 8. Chapter 5, verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And now skipping down to verse 18. Therefore, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And now just bleed that immediately into 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I think that there is a blending of the themes and naturally it flows from five into eight. The third reason, and this is the one that sold me, is that if you read 521 and then immediately, which is the last verse in chapter five, and then immediately you read 8-1, it is seamless and it makes perfect logical sense. Hear the end of chapter 5, verse 21. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is just absolutely seamless. It flows perfectly. Which begs the question, why do we have chapters 6 and 7? And here's what Lloyd-Jones says, and I think he's right. He says that they are parenthetical, a parenthesis, an excursus, a brief sidetrack, not a meaningless rabbit trail, but a supplementary parenthesis. Uh, six and seven are essential portions of Scripture in that they correct 
some misunderstandings that were common amongst the people in Paul's audience. Six and seven are essential in that they answer some practical questions uh, which might have caused some confusion. Paul anticipates that these questions are going to come, and so he gives us chapters 6 and 7. But, as Lloyd-Jones says, they are not in the mainstream or the overarching flow of the argument and the explanation of the gospel that Paul is given. Uh, Let me quote Lloyd-Jones, who puts it this way. The business of chapter 6 is to show positively what our union with Christ does and achieves and will achieve. Chapter 7 is mainly concerned to show what the law cannot do. Chapter 6, what Christ can do. And then he goes on to say, It was simply a digression, meaning chapters 6 and 7, a parenthesis to prove to those who were not clear about this that they really must stop thinking about the law and its observance from the standpoint of either justification or sanctification, end quote. And did you get that? I have a reasonable degree of certainty today that you did not. So let me simplify this in putting it this way. The word therefore appears in chapter 8, verse 1. And it is therefore a reason. And it is pointing back to something which was previously said and drawing a conclusion. And nobody knows for sure exactly what that is. But your pastor and Martin Lloyd-Jones think that it is a logical conclusion drawn from the end of chapter 5, into what is being now said in chapter 8 with chapters 6 and 7, both being side issues off of the main argument. Essential, but off of the main argument. So with that context in place, let's look at our two points today. Now and no. Point number one, now. The text does not say there is no condemnation. The text says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, N-O-W. Now that word is significant. It is a reference to a current status of, of all saved individuals based upon the gospel reality that Christ has now died and that he is risen and that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, the now speaks to our assurance of salvation based upon what Christ now in the gospel has done. The word is significant. It speaks to our assurance of salvation in the now. And assurance of salvation requires faith. Because nobody in this room is in heaven. Nobody in this room has ever been to heaven. Therefore, we could ask the question, am I going to make it to heaven? And Romans chapter 8 verse 1, by using the word now, says that you are. Let me explain. We will sometimes sing the peppy hymn, when we all get to heaven. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, future tense. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing, 
future tense, will sing and shout the victory. Well, amen. I love that song, and that is true. But as I said, it is future tense. We are not yet in heaven. You see, when you get to heaven, here are some things that you will not have. You will not have hope. You will not have doubts. And you will not need faith. It will all be right in front of you. There will be nothing to hope for because you have it already. There's going to be absolutely no doubt as to whether or not you're going to make it, for you will have made it already. And you're not going to need faith for what you will have will be sight. It will be right in front of you at the time. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Well, amen. But the question is, what about now? Today. We are not in heaven right now. You know where we are? We are in now. That's where we live now. And, and, and it is a comfort, Paul says, now, N-O-W, to know that in the future, when we stand to be judged, that there will be no condemnation. There currently is no condemnation, but there will never be any condemnation. Never will know it. For our purposes, now, what is really precious is that we today, now, already can be assured that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, now we are free from condemnation. Now that Jesus died for our sins. Now that he has defeated death. Now that he has washed away our sins. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let me be clear. This assurance of salvation, this confidence, this glorification, this sure hope of heaven is only for the saved. It is only for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not universalism. When we sing, when we all get to heaven, we there is referring to those who are born again. You must be born again. For if you are not born again, you will neither see nor enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, does the assurance of future glory give you peace and joy in the now? It ought to have some practical application. In your day-to-day walk now, do you treasure and value and rejoice at the assurance that you will not ever be damned? So Parker and Anna's father Bill, age 78, Coach Mullinax and I walk into the Georgia State Athletic Association in Thomaston, Georgia, on Tuesday, the 19th of August, 2008. We were met by three distinguished men who would hear our case and decide Parker's fate. Uh, They were polite, but they certainly were not warm. They explained the rule. The rule was that transfer students are ineligible unless there were extenuating circumstances. Parker's coach went first to plead Parker's case, and he appealed to the board, claiming that Parker was not a very good football player. (laughs) He's a great kid, but I'm telling you, he ain't no football player. Yeah, we ain't going to win no more games because we got him. He, he ain't no athlete, so don't worry about this kid being a ringer. He, he just, he's on the team. We love him, but he ain't helping us none. 
they seemed unmoved. Because the rule is the rule. I appealed to their mercy and, and I explained that he wanted to play football his entire life. They again explained the rule that there has to be a reason. And so shamelessly, I said, could you gentlemen please supply me with an example of an acceptable reason? And one man mercifully said, well, for example, if a young man has an elderly grandfather who may need assistance, that could be a valid reason. We all looked at 78-year-old Bill Strain sitting there. By the way, who was in great shape. He lived, he, he lived to be 90. And I said, sir, you see my father-in-law here is a very frail man. And my son could be of great assistance to him. And we would feel much better if there was someone there to assist him. Another board member, tongue-in-cheek, said, yes, that's obvious. He's falling apart. All, all seven of us laughed, and one said, that is an example of a good reason. And then another man said, we are not permitted at this time to tell you what our verdict is, but we will call your school this afternoon and we will tell them what we decide. And we just want you to know that when you get the report, you will be receiving very good news. We shook hands, we walked out, and as we're standing on the parking lot, I'm ready to get in my car and drive back to the airport. I'm saying goodbye to Parker. He is crying. Coach Mullinax looks over him and says, oh, I can't look at that. I'll get all emotional. Let's just get out of here. He got in his car, fired up a cigarette, and drove away with my son and my father-in-law. What were my emotions as I was driving to the Atlanta airport? I was as happy as a lark and as light as a feather. But wait a minute. The verdict had not yet been called in. But we knew now, N-O-W, that the ruling would be favorable, would be yes, and that we would be granted the exemption. Even though the ruling was not in, I knew what the ruling would be. And Paul gives us this little three-letter word, now, N-O-W, and he gives it to all who are in Christ Jesus and it means the world because even though we have not yet gone through the judgment, we are told by God that now, even though we are not yet in heaven, even though we have not yet passed through the judgment, even though the school has not yet officially been informed today, now, today, we know with absolute certainty that we will never see hell and that we will never know God's wrath nor condemnation. We will never be condemned. And because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the horror and the bondage of the Roman Catholic Church says this. You just keep trying. You just keep pressing on. 
You'll find out in the final day. But you can't know for sure. The Gospel says, right now you can be absolutely sure. 1 John 5.13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, know with certainty, 100% certainty, that you have eternal life. And so I ask, do you currently possess that assurance, that security, that confidence, that faith that you will be there based upon what God has said concerning you right now? And some people say, well, you know, I, I, have, I have a really weak faith. I don't have a strong faith. Listen, the weakest faith in the strongest bridge will get you across. Do you have that confidence in the Word of God in Christ that you will never see that condemnation? Do you know that you are not and never will be condemned? That is point number one, now. Point number two, no. N-O. There is therefore now no condemnation. Uh, to condemn here, uh, let's be clear what it means. It, it means to damn to eternal hell. It doesn't mean to scold. It doesn't mean to chastise. It doesn't mean to feel guilty. It, it means that Almighty God, who is Almighty, will cast someone into eternal conscious punishment in hell, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Please don't think that gnashing of teeth is what happens when you stub your toe and you grit your teeth because you are hurting. The gnashing of teeth in Scripture does not mean that you are in agony. It is it is gnashing of teeth in that there is an intense hatred toward God. It is, I hate him. Jonathan Edwards says one of the reasons why hell will be eternal is because man never stops sinning even when they are in hell. There is an intense hatred toward God and there is eternal conscious punishment and there is no escape and there is no second chance. There is no bail. There is no parole. Condemnation. Revelation 20, 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Condemnation. Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, condemnation. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, condemnation. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, condemnation. Matthew 10, 28, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. There is condemnation. There is a hell. God is a God of vengeance. God is not mocked. And every person in this room is deserving of hell. We have earned it. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 6.23. There is none righteous, Romans 3.10. Condemnation is real, it is just, and there are some people who will experience it. In fact, sadly, there are some people in this room right now who will 
be in hell. Uh, Not every person is saved. Not every person who says that they are saved are saved, for not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who thinks that they are saved is actually saved. Only the saved are saved, and there are only two categories. There is the category of the saved. There is the category of the lost. It's like being pregnant. Either you is or you ain't. There is no middle ground. You, right now, are either saved or you are lost. So do this right now. You have my permission for just a moment. Look down the aisle. Put your head on a swivel. Glance around the room right now. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's awkward. But just look at the people in this room. Look at one another. Some of the people that you have seen are going to be in hell forever. I would love to be wrong. But I would never be so naive as to believe that in a room this size that we would all go to heaven. Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them was a demon. Somebody in this room is going to be in hell. Many in this room will be in hell. And when you are there, you I guarantee you, you will remember this sermon. But that is not Paul's point. He is not writing evangelistically. He is not writing to the unsaved. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those of us who are now saved, to those of us who are now in Christ Jesus, who are now born again. And he's saying to us, there is no, N-O, no condemnation. Now, once again, I draw your attention to the horrors and the damnable heresy of the Roman Catholic Church which has invented and fabricated and imagined and dreamed up and conjured up a place called purgatory so as to raise money. It is not in the Bible. You go there, they say, and you pay for or have your sins purged or someone else can pay to get you out. And so you go there and, and and you will not get ultimate condemnation. You will just get partial condemnation. And Paul says there is no, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Purgatory doesn't exist. It's it's like Margaritaville, only warmer. It, it doesn't exist. There is heaven and there is hell. There is heaven, which is glorification. There is hell, which is condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, no hell. If you are in Christ, you are secure. So, even though what we've been speaking about up to this point is ultimate and absolute condemnation, God is the only one that can do that. Let me speak for just a moment about temporary condemnation or what we like to call self-condemnation. If Jesus Christ has justified you, you have no 
justifiable reason to condemn yourself. Your enemies, those who hate you, they cannot condemn you. They have no right to do so. The devil who hates you will want to do everything that he can to damn you. He's an accuser of the brethren. He cannot condemn you. Best of all, God will not condemn you. There is no condemnation. No condemnation now I dread. Hell was our destiny, but that was changed by Christ. Ephesians 2, 3. We were on our way to hell. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now, see point one, N-O-W, now that we are in Christ Jesus, it means that we are not going to hell. No, never. N-O, never. Not only are you, are you not going to hell in actuality, but according to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, God wants you to know, K-N-O-W, now that you will never go there. And so whatever the therefore means, whether Lloyd-Jones and I are right or whether we are wrong, here's what we know for certain that Romans chapter 8 does mean and it is that God wants you to conclude that you are not going to be damned. No chance. If you are not in Christ, I do want to speak evangelistically for just a moment, even though that is not what Paul is speaking of here, but I do want you to know that you will be condemned to hell, and justifiably so. But this is a word to Christians and I would tell you today, please never stop meditating upon the fact that there is a hell, but you aren't going there. And since there is ultimately, actually, no condemnation, there should then be no figurative or temporary condemnation now. In other words, there is no objective reason why we who are in Christ should condemn ourselves. And I think sometimes people practice self-condemnation in order to demonstrate their humility and their piety. When in actuality, self-condemnation for a saved person is a sin of pride, it is an ugly sin and what it essentially says is, I'm going to let Jesus pay for my sins in part, and I'm going to pay for them in part, and I'm not going to accept or act as though I have received full and final pardon, but I'm going to show you how holy I am by condemning myself. I want to take care of my own sins. Yes, we are to take sin seriously, and we are to mourn and to grieve so as to repent, and then so as to be restored by the blood of Jesus, 1 John 1, 7, for if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. For if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are, as Christians, convicted of our sins, not so as to wallow in them and to beat ourselves up 
in them, but so that we will repent and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But there is a difference between godly sorrow that brings you to repentance, 2 Corinthians 7.10, and prideful self-condemnation and wallowing. And I think that it is a grievous and narcissistic insult to God and a denial of the grace of God for you to condemn yourself when Christ has died for you and paid in full for your sins and removed your condemnation. Be like Parker going back to his school and saying, I'm going to sit out this year because the rule says you can't transfer. Parker, put your uniform on and play. You are no longer condemned. In John chapter 8, which Geneva just read, you have a woman who's taken in adultery. Jesus says, He who is among you, let him, without sin, let him cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they all walked away. What did Jesus say to this woman in John 8.10? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. She could say that because she had not been hit with a stone. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go, and from now on sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. That's what the boss says. Do you know why he can say that? Do you know why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? It's because Jesus himself took all of our sins. Our pride and our arrogance, our unbelief, our lack of love and commitment to the local church, the bride of Christ, our cruel tongue and our foul mouth, that abortion, that homosexual encounter, that fornication, that pornography, that adultery, that theft, that laziness, Jesus took it upon himself. That disrespect and disobedience for your parents, those lies, those hundreds of thousands of lies, Jesus took them. Uh, That violence, that drug abuse or that drunkenness, that thanklessness and that discontentment, uh, that gossip, that slander, that backbiting, those outbursts of wrath and whatever else there might have been. And let's be honest, there was a whole lot of other stuff All of it, 100% of it, deserving condemnation. It was ours. We inherited a wicked heart and then we did wicked stuff and we did it freely and openly. We stuck the middle finger up to God. We deserve to be damned and 100% of it is taken from us and it is nailed to the cross And he, the spotless lamb of God, becomes a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. 
Christ became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When those nails went into his hands and his feet, he on that tree becomes a curse and he takes all of those sins. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore in his body our sins upon the tree. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ, the just for the unjust, dies so that he might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin for us. And as a result, do you know what happened to him? One word answer. Condemnation. Condemnation. He never committed a sin, but he was condemned for all of your sins. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. God the Father made his soul an offering for guilt. Isaiah 53.10 By his blood... His death, His sacrifice, His suffering, He took the condemnation you deserve. How much of it did He take? Hey Jesus, looking at the bill here, let's go 50-50. You pay half, I'll pay half. 90-10. If you could just take care of 90% of my sins, Let me take care of the other 10%. No. Do you know why you are not condemned and never will be? Because Jesus paid it all. The gospel is of first importance. No, N-O, N-O, no, no condemnation. God is holy and he will condemn all sin. Either Jesus was condemned for you or you will suffer eternal condemnation. Our text today clearly says this no applies to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't have time today to unpack the phrase in Christ Jesus. We're going to do that, Lord willing, next Sunday. But you do not have to wait until next Sunday to understand the doctrine of union with Christ in order to actually be joined to Christ. Right now, all you need to know is that you are a guilty sinner and that you can right now call out to Jesus in faith and ask him to save you. Do it right now. See point number one, N-O-W, now. I'll explain it next week, but you don't need a full explanation of it in order to be saved. Truthfully, you don't need an explanation as much as you actually need Christ himself. And Romans 10.13 quite simply says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon him right now and be saved. But Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is not an evangelistic text. It is written to believers. And so dear saint today, I want you to be the ones who zero in on the no. No condemnation. Three observations. Number one, intentionally contemplate gospel benefits 
on a daily basis. Meditate upon the Word day and night. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 2. Forget not all His benefits. Why does it say forget not all His benefits? Because there is a propensity in us to very quickly forget all of His benefits. Now, we only covered two today. Uh, Your status now is secure and secure as it ever will be, and that there is no condemnation. That's in half a verse of the Bible. The Bible is 1,189 chapters, and it is a bottomless well of promises, sure promises and spiritual blessings. And we who are in Christ need to be daily reminding ourselves of these things. Why? Because there are conflicting messages which will come to us all the time. There will, first of all, be the greatest liar in the world that will be talking to you, and that is you. You will be talking to you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You just listen to your heart talk, and you're not going to hear gospel truth. So here you got this problem. You're always taking you with you, and you are not telling you the truth. Then you have a world whether it is the news media or whether it is the person in the cubicle next to you who is vile and undone, or whether it is the entertainment industry or whether it is just what you see on the side of a bus. We're just living in a fallen world. And you have the devil, you have yourself, you have the world, and you're just not naturally inclined to be remembering these things. So what you have to do, here's the key word, is to be intentionally thinking about gospel truths. And if you carried in the forefront of your mind sure promises that there is now no condemnation and that there never will be, it certainly would impact your attitude. Now, I'm not talking about mind over matter. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. These are not gospel fairy tales. These are gospel realities. And so meditate upon them, and you cannot meditate upon them if you are not in the Word. So read the Word, read it slowly, think about it, meditate upon it, and allow gospel realities to bring you joy when you consider what we have and who we are in Christ Jesus. Observation number two, be heavenly minded right now. Well, I'm not in heaven. I know that. But we are to think as though we are. Allow the assurance of heavenly bliss to invade the present such that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you have been raised with Christ, and you have, well, what should we do? Well, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then verse 2. Set your minds. This is an imperative. This is something that you're going to do. This is something that involves your thinking. This is, this is a volitional choice. This is an act of obedience. Set your minds on things that are above and not things that are on earth. Today, now, N-O-W, today, February 18th, 2024, you should be thinking about heaven. 
now that Christ has been raised, now that you are saved, now that you enjoy assurance of heaven. You see, when I knew that the Georgia State Athletic Association was going to rule in Parker's favor, even though the verdict had not been officially called out, I was filled with joy and confidence. In the same way, we have something a lot more sure and a lot more secure than a southern gentleman giving a promise. We have God himself saying, now there is no condemnation. And if you believe that, and if you meditated upon it, it would make an actual difference in your joy and your faith and your service and your attitude. Or to state it negatively, it is mathematically impossible for one to be sour or bitter or drab or grumpy or gloomy or edgy or worldly and at the same time be dwelling upon the gospel and spiritual realities. So you show me a grumpy, gloomy, downcast person, I'm just going to show you somebody that's not thinking about the gospel. Application point number three, and I close with this. First of all, you need to thank God that you're not going to hell and that there will be no condemnation. But, but, but here's the gist of the application or the observation. At the same time, you need to reach out to the lost and you need to grieve deeply for those who are going to hell. You need to pray for them. You need to witness to them. You need to share the gospel with them. You need to invite them to church. You need to be a missionary and go to places where people have never heard the name of Jesus. And if they don't hear the name of Jesus, they will go to hell. You need to send missionaries. You need to get behind them. You need to get the message out to those who will go to hell unless they are saved absolutely delight in your deliverance from condemnation but simultaneously ask God to break your heart and to put you into action with the gospel to rescue those who if they died today would be experiencing eternal condemnation you're on a cruise ship something goes wrong that ship goes down There aren't enough lifeboats. Lifeboats capsize. You're out in the water. Along comes a rescue boat. You are thrown a lifeline. You grab a hold of it. You are pulled into that boat with safety. Miraculously, your telephone is still working and you still somehow have a signal. Are you going to get into that rescue boat and immediately start calling your friends and calling your family and telling them about what a crazy adventure you had? No. You are going to get into that lifeboat and immediately you yourself are going to maniacally start looking for an extra lifeline and you are going to put it out there for the perishing 
and you're going to do everything that you can to save as many souls as you can, regardless of how tired you are. You have known the perils. Your life has flashed before your eyes. You, 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 You were going to die, and someone rescued you. Now, remember that rescue. If someone had not reached out to you, you'd be on the bottom of the sea. If someone had not brought this gospel to you, you would be damned today and you'd be damned for eternity. Just as someone threw out a lifeline to you, throw out lifelines to those that are perishing, no matter how excited you are about your own salvation. Rejoice that you have been rescued and at the same time, evangelize, or as Fanny Crosby said, rescue the perishing and care for the dying and snatch them in pity from sin and the grave and weep o'er the erring one and lift up the fallen and tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. We need to love lost sinners. Do you know why? Because God loves them too and because God loves you and because He saved you you i hope you didn't forget that all right 187 down 246 to go which means what means we're getting there father in heaven for the saint today with weak faith i pray that you would grant them assurance i pray that you'd grant them joy and delight in knowing that right now they are secure and that they will forever be secure. Lord, for all of us, may we be preaching the gospel to ourselves and delighting in the fact that you have saved us and may our mind be on heavenly things. Father in heaven, would you please forgive us of our selfish selfish lack of concern for the perishing lord please give us boldness lord please give us strength oh god give us a burden for the lost please save your elect for your glory in jesus name we pray amen